Good morning, church. My name is Emily McKinley. You can talk about me using the pronouns she, her, and hers. And I have the great joy of serving as executive pastor here at Urban Village and in ministry alongside many of the folks that you have already seen um, in this uh, worship service today. I'm so glad to be able to be with you and to worship with you this morning. There's an island off the coast of San Francisco, not the one that was turned into a penitentiary and later occupied by the Indians of all tribes. No, there's another island, three miles further out, which housed a different kind of detainee. It was called the Ellis Island of the West, but it bore witness to a less romantic and much less efficient kind of American immigrant experience. Designed not with cues that would have those fresh off the boat processed with uh, between three to five hours, this emigration outpost was uh, the first home for those who came from a country that bears the distinction of having immigration laws explicitly targeting nationality in the Chinese Exclusion Act. From 1882 to 1943, those who were from China that sought entry into the U.S. were only allowed to do so if they were the children of Chinese men who had garnered citizenship as a result of their time building the American railroad system from the west to the east. These would-be citizens were examined, interrogated, intimidated, and scrutinized from every angle before being given entry to or deported from the United States. The anxiety and grief, helplessness, and hopelessness that many of them felt in the face of systems completely out of their control ran rampant within their spirits. Throughout the day, they could see the activity in San Francisco Bay, and at night, lights twinkled in the distance like tiny promises dangling before them before they went to bed in the overcrowded barracks. Time held little meaning as they were called into rooms with a table and a long list of questions designed to catch them up. The process dragged on for so long that, in despair, some ended their lives. Others expressed themselves through poetry, which can still be found carved into the walls. They gave voice to their depression and homeless, homesickness. They also shared their hopes and their dreams. They encouraged one another to not only remember what was ahead, but who they've left behind, those that were counting on them to build a new life. For some, Angel Island was a grave. But for others, it was a furnace which tested the metal of their conviction and imaginations. But long before the poetry and the barracks, the ferry rides and the railroads, on an island called Patmos on the other side of the earth, there was another man scratching out messages of encouragement to his evangelistic accomplices, keeping hope alive and reminding them that they were part of something, someone bigger than themselves, incarcerated, bound but not gagged by a system which also sought to interrogate, intimidate, and debilitate him. And while Rome could successfully shelter his body in place, they could not quarantine his imagination. John had been an activist for the message of Jesus which disrupted social order and, more dangerously, economic structures. We don't know what he did to get Rome frustrated enough to catch him up and lock him down. Maybe it was just the cumulative force of his decades of work. At this point, authorities were feeling the effects of this fringe movement that, like water seeping through concrete, had worked its way through the foundations of empire. They could feel something starting to give. These Christians were no longer an irritant. They were, in the eyes of the government, domestic terrorists. We don't know how long John wandered the island wearing, perhaps, pants with elastic waistbands and maybe even binging shows, passively accepting Netflix's, Netflix's invitation to play the next episode as time became circular. The island, after all, is only seven miles across, and tradition suggests that he was exiled for about two years. What was he supposed to do with all of that time? 
Meanwhile, Rome was a thousand miles away, but that didn't stop him from seeing its activity and maybe also even a few twinkling lights from across the waterways. John is not a prophet, but in many ways, he was twisting in the same ways that prophets did, operating under a system of totalism, which, as the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann describes, contains all thinkable, imaginable, and doable social possibilities. Totalism always wants to monopolize imagination and technology so that there are no real serious alternatives. When you live in a world in which totalism is true, no language is truly sufficient because all of language has been colonized. But for all of its pervasive and pernicious presence, there is one thing that totalism never seems to manage to subjugate, the prophetic imagination. An imagination that not only sees a world beyond this one, but also finds its greatest weapons in totalism's most obvious oversight, revolution through love and power in vulnerability things that do not make sense to those who speak in languages of violence and oppression. About a year ago, I spent some time learning about this kind of power and revolution through the practice and theory that makes up Theater of the Oppressed, a movement and mode of expression that was developed by Augusto Boal. Theater of the Oppressed was born in Brazil during a time of military totalism. Swiftly and steadily, Funded forms of dissent, journalism, music, visual arts, and finally theater were systematically dismantled. Bored actors and enraged activists got together and fueled by Paulo Freire's work, Theater of the Oppressed emerged. It focused on telling stories and depicting the circumstances of the oppressed, by the oppressed, and for the empowerment of the oppressed. Its goals are to disrupt totalism and imagine ways to collectively interrupt its patterns among and within us. And in fact, this is what we try to do when we're engaging in racial caucusing work at Urban Village, to disrupt the totalism of white supremacy within and among us. It took a long time for the Brazilian government to realize what was happening because the way that the actors did their work was so subversive. They used what was called the aesthetics of the oppressed, which is another way of saying that they made music out of garbage, that they made costumes out of castaways. They wrote their scripts from state-sanctioned newspapers. There was nothing technically wrong with what was happening, but the effect of the practice was dangerous. They could tell that. It was giving people alternative ways of imagining the world and a new foreign language to talk about it with their bodies and their songs. Out of democratic quarantine, deep suppression and imaginative lockdown, something beautiful, creative, and liberative emerged. As we complete our eighth week of sheltering in place, I'm sure that most of us wouldn't fault John if he admitted that his spirit was starting to grow dull. For many of us, the rhythms of our days haven't so much been disrupted as dissolved by an endless loop of insideness, occasionally enlivened and spiced up by a trip to the grocery store or a walk around the block. The sameness of everything and the standstill of movement can leave us drifting in a sea of time that really feels like there's no visible shore. Even the things we do to occupy our energies stop working. There are only so many TikToks you can make, so many quarantine challenges you're up for. So then what do you do when you find yourself at the end of amusement? 
It'd be easy to assume that we have nothing meaningful to offer the world until things revert to normal. But frankly, what has normal gotten us anyway, right? Hypercapitalistic mentalities that keep us spinning our wheels until we are sick with anxiety, measuring our belovedness and value against our productivity and finding ourselves never having done enough, never being loved or lovable enough. I'm okay with not returning to normal. And yet even in a collective standstill like ours, illusions continue to run free. If it isn't YouTube videos laying out a case for why we ought to ignore the advice and research of countless doctors, epidemiologists, and public health care workers, then it's white men, restless, itchy, and high on vigilante visions hunting game who happen to be going for a jog in the neighborhood. Ahmaud Arbery's murder reminds us that ideologies still have legs and death-dealing systems of thought continue to exercise power, quarantine or not. And in his own way, Perhaps at some point, John, wandering around Patmos, came to a similar kind of realization. He'd been hustling so hard to get this movement going, maybe even this unexpected, unpleasant, unwanted disruption was actually what he needed, what God could use to keep the communities that he had organized inspired and courageous, bold in their decision-making and their declaration of a new world that Jesus came to bring about. Did the angel come to him in the middle of prayer, or was he struck dumb on his daily walks along the coast? Either way, he accessed a wild language and a fantastical vision. No tongue could fully capture it all, but he tried. Creatures and beasts that even Napoleon Dynamite couldn't conjure up. Symbols and signs that numerologists continue to draw conclusions from. I think sometimes of Revelation as being sort of like a magic eye poster, right? Where you see a thing, uh, but if you start to look really closely, you lose the image. Of course, that's why we have people like Jeff Myers around, a member of our Hyde Park Woodlawn site, who did his doctoral research on Revelation. Not only could he debunk any remaining uh, remnants of the Left Behind series in your mind, if we have enough interest, maybe he could, he'll even give you a ride on the fantastic voyage of John's imagination. Just hit me up if you're interested in joining a small group. I know that Jeff is down for that. Of course, for John, uh, these were not just abstract thoughts. Throughout Revelation, he pictured in his mind's eye the seven churches that he had loved and labored alongside, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. He knew their struggles and their celebrations, their shortcomings and their strengths, their quirks and their quabbles. And so, rooted in his deep love for them and guided by the tongues of angels, John picked up his pen or quill or whatever and he wrote to each of his beloved communities, calling out their gifts and urging them to deal with their shortcomings. He cast a vision of a world violently, lovingly disrupted, time torn apart so that a new heaven and a new earth could be made real. A world where his people did not fear being hunted down on streets and fed to beasts as spectator sport, empires lynching arenas. A world barren of overcrowded barracks where children and adults were no longer examined and interrogated, comfortless and isolated as they awaited citizenship in an endless, frightening circle of time in a country and in a world that saw them always perpetually as aliens. John wrote to his people of a world where there was enough, enough safety, enough health care, enough wealth, enough love. 
like a Navajo code talker, John uses a language so foreign to totalism and empire that he didn't even have to hide his subversive truths. He could speak them in broad daylight. A battered lamb is a symbol of power. A great banquet is a locus of reconciliation. Images like these make no sense to totalism and empire, but they make all the sense in the world to us, even some 9,000 miles away and 2,000 years later. These images have and continue to fortify, galvanize, and activate God's people. John, from his lonely outpost in Patmos, proclaims revolution through a declaration of interdependence and closes out the Bible with a portrait of God's future so wild they were probably making him walk a line to see if he was in his right mind. You may be alone right now, sheltering in place or feeling isolated, but you are not far from God. You may be surrounded by silence, but you are not voiceless. You might be sheltering in place, but God's imagination and spirit is running wild out here on these streets, in and out of every heart and mind, including yours, ready to do, to speak, to act through you. You don't have to be John, but you can be like him. Reflect, meditate, pay attention. What is the spirit stirring up, calling you toward? What is she confronting you with in these days? And how will you respond? Let us pray. God, we are grateful that there is no barrier, no uh, virus that can trap your spirit and prevent you from doing powerful, miraculous, tremendous work within and through us and around us. And so we ask God in this time, as we shelter in place, as we figure out what it means to faith in place, we ask that you would show up, that you would disrupt our days and our hearts, help um, enliven our imaginations, and do, uh, do what it is that John did so long ago. Figure out ways to take what you have planted within us, to change the world, change each other, enact transformation and inspire others toward the vision of a kind of world that you desire us to live in, a world where wholeness of life for all is not just a great idea, but a reality. Wherever we find ourselves in our lives, in our gifts, in our possibilities. We ask God that you would move powerfully so that we might be able to find ourselves, even if we are um, quarantining or isolated, that we can find ourselves participants and partners with you in your co-creative work in this world. Encourage us when we feel that there is nothing left for us to give or we are feeling overwhelmed by our isolation. Strengthen us when we feel weak. Inspire us when we feel dull and call us out Enact us for your purpose so that this world might know your great love in a deeper, realer, and more profound way. In Jesus' name we, are pray we pray. Amen.